This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv slash donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs. Wonderful. Thank you so much um, for having me today. I'm really excited to be here and be able to present to you a little snapshot of some of the research that we're doing here at UCSB in the field of clinical psychology. Uh, So first, starting off with the question, what is autism? So this is a term that you may or may not have heard of, and it really describes a neurodevelopmental uh, disability that really manifests childhood, but then ends up being something that somebody has lifelong. And so some of the characteristics, uh, one of the first telltale signs, uh, individual has challenges with social communication. Some are completely nonverbal. Some have more limited language. Others are verbally fluent, meaning that they have kind of the full range of use of language, uh, but they struggle using that conversationally. So they may struggle with the conversational or pragmatic use of, of language. And as a result of these social challenges, uh, oftentimes they don't end up having the the friendships that they desire, the other relationships that they want. And so other characteristics that kind of define autism is folks that will have restricted interests. So they might have a really strong thematic interest that uh, they may be all-consuming, something that they're pretty obsessed with. kind of to the detriment of anything else going on. Uh, Repetitive behaviors, you might see toe walking, hand flapping, kind of repetitive play with toys, using toys in a way that's maybe a little bit uh, unusual and not kind of the functional way that a toy is typically played with. Um, But ultimately, the reason it's called an autism spectrum uh, disorder, autism spectrum condition, is because there's high degree of variability in what this looks like. There's folks that are nonverbal, that need a lot of help and 24-hour care. There's also individuals with off-the-charts IQ that live independently. They might even uh, be CEO of a company. They might have a family and kids and uh, be pretty kind of self-sufficient, but they still might struggle with some of the rigid behavioral patterns, uh, some of the uh, challenges with with socializing and, and kind of maintaining those relationships. Okay, so today we're going to talk a little bit, uh, give you a tour of the center, uh, and then we're going to talk about two pretty pretty critical developmental milestones. So toddlerhood, okay, that's that critical bridge between when you're an itty-bitty infant and you're blossoming into a child, right? There's a lot that goes on there. When you're first born, you don't talk, you don't walk, you're really... You're dependent on adults to do everything from you, to feed you, to change your diaper, everything. And in the span of a few short years, suddenly you're a walking, talking force to be reckoned with, right? You have all of this independence. You can kind of get into things you're not supposed to get into. You can mess with stuff. And really, that's the way that your cognitive development, your brain development is happening, is you exploring and learning from other people. Another critical transition is this adolescence. It's childhood now transitioning to adulthood. And all of you are kind of on the verge of a big transition here where suddenly you don't have caregivers kind of helping, making decisions. You're going to launch into adulthood. And for that's simultaneously very exciting and very scary um, to have to kind of take on that level of independence and autonomy all by yourself. And then ultimately, we're going to talk about how these projects, now we're thinking about how do we increase the impact and the scalability of that. So starting off with the center. So what is it that we do at the center? So I like to sum it up. We create 
Transformational Autism Intervention Programs, okay? That's no small feat. And what we mean transformational is that we need to impact someone's life in such a way that it is fundamentally different from when we started working with them, okay? Easy, right? All right, so some of the unique things about our center is we are primarily student-run. So we have graduate students, we have undergrads, we have sometimes high school volunteers that serve as our clinicians, as our researchers, and really the future leaders in this field. Okay? So whether they go into education or clinical psych or medicine or even dentistry, we want folks to have a working understanding of what it means to work with neurodiverse populations because everyone's brain works a little bit different and we want folks to be able to have a good working understanding of how to work effectively with this population. Okay? We're strength-based and person-centered. What does that mean? That means we're not just interested in identifying what somebody's deficits are, what somebody's weaknesses are, what they can't do well. Uh, we, we start from a place of strength. So oftentimes we're asking, what are your child's strengths? What are their interests? What is it that they're really passionate about? Because looking there, we can often find the resources and the tools to enable to help somebody to thrive if they're struggling in other areas. Person-centered meaning, we're focused in on the needs of that person first. We're not just trying to get rid of problem behavior. We're not just trying to make them comply to instructions. We want to say, hey, you're a human being and you've got aspirations, you have dreams. What is it that you want to do? Okay, who, who do you want to be friends with? Uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? And then we want to make sure that everything we're tailoring in our programs are centered around helping that person reach their full potential. Okay, uh, In doing these types of treatments and interventions and therapies over time, we've really strived to be a world-class autism intervention center, meaning that we're at the forefront of what works best to help people with autism have the best quality of life possible. Okay? So what we see in our outcomes from our research is really life-altering outcomes. And then this has helped kind of build an international reputation for excellence. So let's take a, a deeper dive into some of the work that we're doing now. So toddlerhood, okay? So that transition from infancy to childhood, again, a really critical time where you're learning how to walk, you're learning how to talk, you're learning how to use your brain. So let's think a bit about what drives child development, okay? It turns out if you just kind of left a kid by themselves, not a good idea, by the way, uh, over time, if, if you took care of their basic needs, make sure they were fed and you changed their diapers, but you didn't give them a lot of social interaction, that's not going to be the best for their development, okay? So we are, humans are social creatures. We really thrive uh, by ongoing social interaction. And so here we have an example of a parent-child social engine. This could be a caregiver-child social engine, a grandparent-child social interaction. But over time, we could see what happens. So in a lot of interactions, a parent does some sort of bid. It might be like a peekaboo game, like, oh, where's mommy? Where's mommy? The child responds, and they, go, they might pull down the blanket, or they might say, duh, or they might do some sort of response. And then um, what's going to happen over time is the child loves that game, so they're going to start to initiate that on their own. They want that to continue, right? So they're going to try to figure out some way to do that again. Um, do it again, or they might make a sound. And then the parent is going to go ahead and respond back. So you can see this pattern of parent, parent initiating, child responding, or child initiating and the parent responding. So it's this back and forth, back and forth, right? And it's this cycle over time. 
And what's really powerful about this is they can learn language this way. They can learn different emotional responses this way. Oftentimes, if a child sees something potentially scary, they'll look at their parents, see, is mom freaked out too? Or is dad freaked out? Nope, they're okay. Okay, then this thing's okay. And oftentimes, you've seen this where a kid will fall to the ground. I don't know if I should cry or not. Let me check with my parents. And if the parents are like, oh my goodness, then the kid will start to cry. But if, but if they're like, oh, you're okay, get back up. They're like, oh, well, I guess I'm okay. And they'll dust themselves off and they don't have that big kind of crying and then meltdown too. So there's a lot that happens in this parent-child social engine over time. So what happens in autism's impact? So oftentimes we have somebody who's less socially responsive, okay? And what that means is when a, a parent does a bid, oftentimes there's no child response, Okay? And so the, child, the parent might try some other things, but if the child's not responding, they're like, hmm, I guess the, my kid's not into that game. So they may not do that interaction anymore. Or something else that might happen, a child might not make that bid anymore, okay? Because they don't know how fun peekaboo is, or they don't see the inherent value of engaging in that back and forth play. So the child's not going to initiate that type of play back. And so the parent doesn't have an opportunity to respond, and they're not going to do those types of bids in the future. Okay, so really the question becomes, how do we jumpstart this engine? If this is so important, if this gets language going, if this gets their cognitive, their brain development going, if this gets their emotional development and their regulation skills going, how do we get them interested and connected with the people that are arguably the most important in their lives? So their parents, okay? And so what we've done is we've taken this, what we call the PRISM model, and it's this intervention that's really designed to target social motivation, okay? So what is PRISM? So we start with motivation. So the question is, what does the kid love more than anything else in the world? And so for some kids, it might be a favorite ball, it might be a toy, it might be a, uh, one of those sound-making toys, you push the button and it makes the same sound over and over again. It might be picking up leaves and just dropping it and watching it float be um, down. It might be picking up a stick and waving it in front of their eyes. It might be something that's a toy, it might be something that's just a repetitive play uh, interest that they might have. And then what we're going to do from there is we want to try to incentivize them um, to talk for that thing, right? If I love this thing more than anything else in the world, I'm going to do anything for that. And if I'm nonverbal, I might even be willing to make a sound out of my mouth to get that, okay? So we might model. So let's say I have, uh, I don't know, a ball right here. And the kid is super into it. And so I might say ball, and the kid is reaching for it. They're grunting. They're excited for it. And then maybe even accidentally they say, bah. And I'm like, ball, yes. And I give them that ball. Suddenly a powerful exchange has happened. They've learned when I say something, I get something out of it. I got the thing that I love most in the world. And we can also do this with their favorite snacks, with juice boxes, with picking them up and swinging them in the air. And we can incentivize them to start using social communication to get it what they want from the world. Okay? Another thing we can do, instead of just giving them things that they want, is we can hijack this, social in this child interest and turn it into a social activity. So instead of just handing them a ball to play with, we might bounce the ball higher than they can do themselves. If, rather than just letting them jump on a trampoline, we might jump with them and double bounce them and spring them high up to the moon and back. Uh, we might do a lot of things to get them more engaged in an activity and more excited about something than they could do all by themselves. And suddenly we've created an interest here, a social interest, that's appealing to them because doing it with somebody else is much more rewarding than doing it all by yourself. 
And then what we can do is once we've tapped into a few of these interests, we can start to build this social momentum over time. So how do we increase this interaction, this interest in, in, in human interaction over time? We can start figuring out all of the activities that involve another person that this person loves. Okay? So this is kind of the basis of our intervention model. Okay? So back to our social engine here. Okay? Oops, sorry, let me go back here. Back to our social interest here, we're gonna take something, make it social, and make it so when we do a bid, the child's gonna respond to us. And we're gonna hope that they like this thing so much that they're gonna actually initiate all on their own and get us to do this interaction more and more, okay? So what we did is we took families that had a child with autism, these were toddlers, um, and for 10 hours a week, we worked with their families. So we did eight hours directly with the child, and we also taught the parents how to really engage and how to play with your child in a way that's going to promote the language development, the social communication development, and the social engagement piece, okay? So the interaction was this ABC sequence. And so, okay, this time maybe I have water balloons. It's a hot day. Maybe we're throwing up water balloons, watching them explode in front of us. So I do one. Boom, the kid lights up. They're smiling, they're excited. And then I hold up the next water balloon and I say, water? And the, and the child maybe struggles for a little bit, but then they go, wah. And then because they tried to say the word water, I throw the water balloon up, it explodes. Uh, we scream, we laugh, we have a great time. And then we set up another opportunity. And then when the kid gets tired of that, maybe we move on to playing with the hose and we're spraying with the hose. And then when we realize that there's a water shortage in California, we say, okay, we're going to stop with the water play, but we're going to move on to something else that can save the water supply and keep this child engaged. So we might move inside and we might play with um, marble ramps or toy cars or whatever it is the child's interested in. And in doing so, if we've done our job right, the child doesn't realize that they're actually in therapy. They think they're just playing with a bunch of their favorite toys. But really, we have a secret agenda in mind, and it's to get their language going. It's to get them super engaged with us, and it's to get them to seek out interaction with adults more so than wanting to be all by themselves. Okay? And so the research, uh, so we published a few articles on this, looking at individual families and having them watch, uh, recording them, and then systematically coding these over time. So we'll watch kind of frame-by-frame frame videos. We'll watch what the child is doing. We'll watch what the parents are doing. We've also looked at kind of standardized assessment measures, looking at language broadly, language scores, cognitive scores. Um, and, and really the takeaway is we want to see, does this actually have an impact on these individuals, both in the sh immediate moment, but also in the long term? So first thing we did was look at child engagement, okay? And so how do we quantify that? Because we can't just have somebody say, oh, yeah, they look pretty engaged. Yeah, thumbs up. So that doesn't fly in the research community. So we have to kind of quantify what we mean by engagement. So um, that might look um, like child eye contact. That might look like directed facial expressions. Um, that might look like child initiations, right? And their responsiveness. Same thing with parent engagement. We can't just say the parents looked pretty engaged. We wanted to do the same thing. When we get parents involved, we wanted to see what extent they were actually directing facial expressions. They were actually enjoying themselves in these sessions moment by moment, okay? Um, we looked at the child initiations, a telltale sign if a kid really likes an activity, they will ask you to continue that activity all by themselves. They're not going to wait for you to say, hey, 
you want to keep going? And, they, and have them say yes or no. They will go ahead and say, ball, I want to play with the ball again. Or I want to play with the water balloons. Or I want you to spin me around. Or I want to play toy cars again with you. Um, so if they're initiating a whole bunch, that's a good sign. Okay? Ultimately, what we can do is if we're collecting enough of this behavioral data, we can actually look at it sequence by sequence, moment by moment, and see if there's a sequential relationship that's going on. Meaning, the child starts doing something, does that trigger something in the parent's behavior? And when the parent does something, does that trigger something in the child's behavior? So we can look at this synchrony that's happening back and forth. Okay? And maybe you've had this moment where you're playing with somebody, maybe you're out on the dance floor, I don't know, um, and you just kind of feel in tune with somebody. You're both smiling, you're making eye contact, and you feel connected with that person. That's really what we're trying to generate here with the parent and the child, okay? And what we see over time is the child's language skills improve, not just in that moment, but when we actually do like speech and language evaluations on them. And when we look at kind of early developmental assessments, their intellectual functioning, that improves too. We look at their adaptive skills, which is the skills they use on a moment-by-moment basis, kind of all by themselves without prompting, okay? Can a kid take care of their own needs without the need for prompting and help from adults? Okay, that improved too. And then ultimately, what we saw was the, the challenges associated with autism, those reduced over time, okay? So pretty remarkable. We're, we're setting them on a path where the toddlers can be more successful as they enter into childhood, Okay. All right. Uh, A quote we had was uh, from one parent participating in this project was, this project was a vital piece in my son's development. We watch our son flourish in ways that we could have only hoped. Okay. The level of care and understanding we experienced was amazing and truly life-changing. And this is great. We often, we see over and over again, kids that started out nonverbal, parents worried, will my child ever speak? And now the opposite problem is true. They're like, can you get my child to shut up a little bit? (laughs) Because they talk nonstop. They talk about everything. They talk about their friends at school and what they want to be when they grow up and all of this. And honestly, that's a great problem to have. Okay. Um, So that's a little bit about what we do at the toddler level. So now we're going to jump forward in development to adolescence. All right. Something you may or may not be familiar with in the audience. Um, but when we talk about adolescence, that's, it's scary and exciting, again, like we mentioned before. So the teen social engine, there's a social engine here, but it looks a little bit different, okay? Uh, so first of all, you have to have motivation. You have to want to be able to seek out other people and want to hang out with them, chat with them, get to know them, okay? Because if you don't have that, you're going to stay at home, Right? The other thing you need to have is social competence, which is kind of the insight, the understanding, and the skills to use when you're actually face-to-face with somebody else, okay? Um, Because you need that piece, too. You you can't just go and and, um, have the interest, but you have to be able to have the skills to back it up. And when you have that, you're actually going to engage in peer interaction, okay? A lot of you have been immersed in constant peer interaction since you've got here. And for some of you, that's a little bit scarier than for others. Uh, But keep going over time, and you're going to get this engagement and learning, okay? Every encounter that you have, it's almost like a social skills academy, okay? Bit by bit, moment by moment, you're acquiring skills over time, okay? So, but what happens... um, Sorry. Sorry. in a way, what, that happen, what happens here is a bit like a socialization superhighway, right? You've you kind of connected with people. You've chatted a little bit with them. Uh, you've made a group of friends. 
every time that you interact and interact with peers, you're kind of on this super highway that's going to really set you up for social success, okay? Because you're building skills and competencies that you will need in adulthood. Uh, the challenge with autism, though, is that oftentimes you have one or the other missing. So let's say you have the skills, you could interact with other people, but the motivation just isn't there. Maybe you have a lot of social anxiety. Maybe you just don't feel like it. You'd prefer to kind of just be on your own. Um, if that's the case, this social engine is not going to happen. It's going to stall out. You might also have the motivation, but not the skills to back it up. And those are people that might come in and they might tell jokes that are inappropriate or immature. They might have uh, a way of interacting that's really abrasive. They come off wrong. Um, and as a result, they might get teased. They might get ignored. They might even get bullied because their approach is a little bit different than the norm. Okay. Or they might not have either of these. And because they don't have the motivation or the skills, they're not going to have that peer interaction. And then ultimately, they're kind of stuck in a spot where they don't have the ability to be socially engaged or to learn. And the question really is, how do we build an on-ramp to socializing if somebody doesn't able, isn't able to get onto that socialization superhighway? Okay. And that's really where we dug deep, and we had a lot of people that would come to the Autism Center, and they struggled in this way. And so what we built was the START program, which is the Social Tools and Rules for Teens program. Okay. And so we did a clinical trial with this, um, and we really designed a program. We wanted it to be peer-facilitated, meaning it was run by undergrads and high school uh, volunteers. We didn't want it to be an adult-led program. Adults meaning those kind of 30, 40-plus-year-olds uh, kind of teaching teenagers how to socially interact. Because first of all, nobody would want to go to that program. And second of all, like, what does a 30 or 40-year-old know about TikTok or, or Instagram or anything that's kind of relevant to kind of adolescence right now. And so we wanted to get uh, the teachers, the facilitators to be relatively equal in age. Okay. So we wanted a club-like program where we had people that actually could make it fun, just like an after-school program. We wanted a comprehensive program that covered all these different social skills that were actually relevant to being a teenager. Um, we also didn't want it to just be more school because most of these folks had school during the day. We didn't want them to like, hey, in the afternoon, guess what? You get to go to social school. Are you guys excited? You, I know you just learned math and English, but now you're going to go to social school. No, we wanted actually to learn by doing, meaning you're immersed, you're hanging out, you're eating pizza, you're playing games. Um, and then through that process, you're actually learning how to interact with others. Okay. But we also realize everyone's different. They have their different quirks, okay? Everyone look around them. Everybody next to you has a different social quirk, okay? They may know about it. They may not know about it, okay? Um, so in addition to kind of teaching a global set of social skills, we also wanted to work with somebody to say, hey, you've got your own individual quirks. Let's identify what those are. Maybe you know, maybe you don't. Maybe your parents do, maybe they don't. Maybe we can help you identify that. And we can help you kind of target those skills too to help you improve. Because guess what? In junior high and high school, you don't get that type of feedback. They don't say, hey, let me sit and work with you. They just go hang out with somebody else, okay? Or they might make fun of you and tease you. And you're really stuck without a, a, a set of skills to be able to improve, okay? So we had 90-minute sessions, 20 
sessions over the course of almost half a year. So pretty intensive, but again, there's a lot of challenges that we're working to overcome. So people would check in. There would be free socialization time where folks would just kind of hang out, eat pizza. Um, They were also secretly tracking the use of their skills. So it might be, hey, I never ask questions. So every time I ask a question, I'm giving myself a point. So, hey, nice shirt. Where'd you get it? I give myself a point. Hey, what'd you do this weekend? Who'd you do that with? Where'd you go afterwards? And I might be tracking that, or I might be tracking compliments, or telling people about myself if I'm a shy person. So those are all different skills that I might track over time. Okay? Then I have a social topic discussion. We would have popular media clips from different TV shows, kind of demonstrating how to use and how not to use a skill. We'd have people practice. We do like speed dating type stuff. We do a lot of role plays. And then we do structured social games and activities. And then at the end, we'd invite the parents to an individual checkout set some social homework goals, and then get them to keep working on that. So the research, over the course of several publications, um, over the course of our clinical trial, what we saw was parent ratings of their teens improved. The teens also rated that they improved. Well, that's kind of cheating. Everyone's going to say they did better. But do they objectively improve in a way that's actually measurable? So um, autism symptom severity, according to the parents, decreased. Uh, we also video recorded them getting to know people they had never met before, okay? Uh, and to see what kind of social skills you'll u- use in a live situation. So when we coded those skills, those improved over time, both the verbal and the nonverbal skills. When we had people watch these videos and rate them, they didn't know what our project was about. Those impression ratings increased too. When we asked about real-world outcomes, those real-world friendships improved too, the number both reported by the teen and from the parent. So we had a feeling that maybe the parents were maybe a little bit more discerning about what constituted a friend or not. And then ultimately, when we looked at follow-up, 20 weeks after we finished this project, we checked back in with all of these teens and saw that not only did they sustain their gains, sometimes they even improved even more, which is really exciting. Okay. Uh, so another quote from a, a parent. So start help my teen with social skills and appropriate language. Teach them how to interact with other people. Okay. Just having a meeting once a week gave them a boost in confidence and actual social calendar for the first time. Okay. All right. So two developmentally uh, different time periods, but the same life-altering outcomes. Okay. And ultimately, the last thing we want to talk about is impact and scalability. So. What we're trying to do now is, is we've kind of demonstrated that there's this potential for impact. So we want to expand it to different age groups, different ability levels, uh, people that are more minimally verbal, uh, different interventions, uh, paradigm-shifting new models. We've, we've created a program that completely focuses on social media use. We're developing a curriculum to focus on dating for, for people that want to go on dates and want romantic relationships but don't know how. And we're continuing to tinker and innovate in this area. But it doesn't help if we just help the people out here in Santa Barbara, okay? We have to scale out and make sure that these, these interventions actually have an impact worldwide. And so we're uh, rolling out kind of parent and professional trainings, different workshops. We've created smartphones, apps that can actually help teach parents to this without needing a clinician, uh, community agency implementation, and then also influencing policymakers to kind of create policies at a state or a national level that actually prioritize helping individuals with developmental disabilities to thrive over time. Um, 
And the last thing we're doing is partnering with the community. So just having the awareness, you sitting in this audience right now, you're part of this community now. And you have a, a good working knowledge of what autism is and how to help people on the spectrum. And so we're constantly looking for ways to partner with the community in order to kind of um, be responsive to everyone's needs. And whether that's somebody uh, with neurodiverse needs, autism, ADHD, um, or related challenges, we want to all partner together to make this happen. And with that, I just want to say a word of thanks. Uh, Thank you so much. There's our website for more information. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.